LinkedIn presents. Welcome into another episode of Everything is Logistics, a podcast for the thinkers in freight. I am your host, Blythe Burleave, and I am happy to welcome in Joe Aliaro, VP of Sales and Chief Real Estate Officer at Wagner Logistics. And we're going to be talking about the state of warehousing. Joe, did I, first of all, welcome into the show, but did I just butcher your last name? <laughs> uh, it, well, you were pretty darn close. I'll, I'll give you that. Okay. Uh, I, I, I've heard, I've heard Olia Rio. I've heard all kinds of stuff. So it's it's, uh, it's uh, same stuff, different day. But that's uh, what I've started having to do is put my name uh, phonetically next to my signature line, and that uh, that typically helps people out. But uh, you're, you're pretty close. Oh, Oliero is yeah. Oliero. Okay, okay. So I was kind of close, but not exactly there. And as as somebody with a um, a challenging first and last name, um, I found that even like adding phonetic spelling just doesn't work because people don't even know where to start with mine. So we're in the same boat. <laughs> Okay, so so Joe, for for folks who may not be aware of of you of Wagner Logistics, uh, give us kind of a sense of of who you are, how you you found yourself working in this industry, and then ultimately how you started your your company. Oh man, uh, so Wagner Logistics has been around since 1946, so 77 oh, wow. years. Um, started out as Wagner Cartage Service, uh, helping out with transportation that morphed into warehousing. And here we are today, uh, uh, occupying roughly 7 million square feet across 24 different markets in the U.S. Um, from 2015 to 2020, we doubled in size and we're on track to redouble again. Um, and most of that uh, warehousing activities through contract logistics in support of manufacturing uh, groups that um, they basically have us uh, run the D.C. for them. They bring in raw materials. We store those in the DC. We shuttle them to the manufacturer or the factory. Finished goods come back out, and then we we hold them there and then send them on down the supply chain. So that's kind of where we've made our our uh, our bones in the uh, warehousing industry, and and uh, we've been a, a running and successful top 103 PL for the last 21 years. Nice, and so it's. To give, I guess, folks kind of a, an understanding of what your, I guess, uh, customer segments look like, is it is it any refrigerated warehouses, temperature controlled, um, anything like that? Or is it mainly just those manufacturing supplies? Um, it's mainly just those manufacturing suppliers. We're heavy in the paper industry. Uh, hmm. We worked in automotive. Uh, we work in the energy sector. Uh, we work with plastics in the past. And, and um, most of the... Um, most of the warehouses are ambient, so we don't have any, uh, you know, cold storage facilities or anything like that. But uh, we've we've kind of found a, a niche uh, in what we do, and it's a lot of pallet in, pallet out um, type activity, and and we've become incredibly efficient at that. Awesome, yeah, it, it, that's super interesting because I would just imagine. That for well, I guess I, I can't really imagine because that was going to be my next question. Is kind of give us a. a, a a baseline of, you know, because uh, over the last few years, I don't have to tell anybody that listens to the show or even you that, you know, obviously the market has changed dramatically. It's like a pendulum that's that's shifting from from back and forth with the rise of, you know, e-commerce deliveries during the last few years, uh, overwhelming demand for for warehouse space. Give us a sense of what the the warehouse market looked like before all of this craziness entered the market. 
So manufacturers, shippers loved just-in-time inventory prior to the pandemic. Um, they loved, you know, having a minimal warehouse footprint. And as soon as the pandemic hit, their volume, or I guess their demand increased, uh, you know, by 30% in some cases. So it was, it was immediately, their, their just-in-time inventory uh, was immediately depleted and they had to come up with another solution. And so the, the warehouse market was already tight. Um, and so they had to figure something out. They said, well, let's go and find some 3PL partners that might have, might be able to set aside some space or help us with more efficiency uh, to, uh, you know, create more, um, more space within our warehouse or in their warehouse. And so we've been dealing with that level of demand for the last couple of years. And it's, it's created a, a, a paradigm shift in, in how, um, you know, these companies look, look at their supply chain and it's really put a spotlight on the value of procurement um, and, and best practices for supply chain managers across the country. And so when we think about, you know, everything that was, you know, I guess the, the just in time model to, you know, fast forward to today is, is it kind of safe to say that they don't necessarily need that model anymore? Yes. Uh, well, I, I don't know if they don't need that model anymore. They still want that model, but they also want extra overflow space and extra, maybe what we call it an extra 30 days of inventory on, hmm. on hand so that they have that much extra time to, to react to fluctuations in the market and demand. And so and I, think, I, I think there's still a lot of things in question too, as far as how consumers are starting to shake out of this, um, yeah, because it almost feels like it's still, you know, it, it put e-commerce on on steroids for a while, which, you know, just created this massive amount of, of storage demand for, for a lot of these retailers out here. But I imagine a lot of that has sort of settled in, but it's still, you know, this settling in is still significantly higher than, than 2019 levels. Is that a, a fair assumption? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think here in the last year and going forward, you know, we're there. People are starting to talk about an influx of onshoring back to the U.S., um, which is going to have a major effect on on jobs, on the the uh, the vacancy uh, for industrial warehouse across the country, um, and just a, a, another you know another another bone to, to to throw or another monkey wrench to throw in the engine to uh, to cause further disruption. Let's actually dive into in, into that a little bit more because I, I'm actually really fascinated with that. You know the the near shoring and uh, uh, efforts that are going on within manufacturing. What what is the I guess the I guess the current space level of of space that's available? If I'm a, a retailer, if I'm a manufacturer, and I'm looking for space, is it easy to come by or is it very challenging and expensive to come by? So, uh, so if you're looking in the top fifty markets across the country. Uh, you are most likely at a sub 5% vacancy. Now, what that means is there's less than 5% of the industrial product in that market available and vacant ready for a, uh, a tenant. Now, if you're looking in Dallas, I was just in Dallas a couple weeks ago. And if you're planning to take down a warehouse space or if you're a 3PL looking to service a contract, the timing of that is critical because there's so much product, industrial product coming out of the ground 
that if you're looking for it tomorrow, there might be something available today. But if you're trying to plan for Q4, um, you might be in trouble because you don't know exactly what's going to come out of the ground. You don't know exactly what's going to be available. And frankly, you don't know what rates are going to look like. Um, uh, let's see. In you know, If you're in the Inland Empire, uh, it, there's virtually no space available. And so we've started looking uh, it, it, to uh, buildings that are closer to our facilities in like Tracy and Stockton, um, where the rates aren't as crazy. Uh, there is some sort of uh, availability and it's not a top 50 market, but it's it's close enough uh, from a tertiary standpoint to, to say, hey, we can probably meet your needs here and you know save you some money on occupancy costs. Um, and then for, as far as onshoring goes, it, you know, over the next five years, um, there are 68 metro markets in the U.S. and Canada that will see an additional 10 million square feet or more of new industrial facilities. And that's mainly manufacturing. Um, and so cities in the Sun Belt and Midwest that are close to rail uh, and port facilities are most likely to keep or see these types of developments. So you're going to see a shift away from the east and west coast, and I think you're going to see a, a major uh, a major influx of manufacturing activity, uh, you know, into the Midwest and and uh, in that area. Um, in uh, I saw a a map of mega projects across the U.S. and you know it's 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 even siloed into, you know, these lithium ion batteries, automotive uh, data centers, uh, which aren't necessarily for warehousing, but, you know, it's, it's taking up a lot of the bandwidth for, for large mm -hmm. space that could be used for fulfillment or warehouse distribution. This episode is brought to you by SPI Logistics, the premier freight agent and logistics network in North America. Are you currently building your freight brokerage's book of business and feel that your capabilities are being limited due to lack of support and access to adequate technology? At SPI Logistics, we have the technology, the systems, and the back office support to help you succeed. If you're looking to take control of your financial future and build your own business with the backing of one of the most successful logistics firms in North America, visit SPI3PL.com to learn more. And so what happens whenever you're noticing, you know, you as a company versus, you know, a, a manufacturer, they notice, you know, the, you know, the 5% or less amount of, of space that you can, you know, actively use right now um, versus the demand that's coming in the future. Why wouldn't a lot of these manufacturers just build their own warehouse? I, I imagine there's much more to it, but that, that's where I was hoping that you can kind of clarify on, on why they wouldn't. Uh, why they, why they wouldn't, uh, do, do onshoring or, or why, why they wouldn't build their own say they see all the complexities that are going on in the market right now if they maybe want to guarantee that flexibility in the future why wouldn't they just go out and 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 you know buy up their own land and buy up their own you know or build up their own warehouse well i think that's what a lot of these manufacturers are doing uh they're going out and finding land in, in the midwest you know you got you got uh, i'll use kansas city for example on on east and west of of kansas city proper you've got nothing but farmland and hmm. nothing but developable space. Um, the challenge with building out warehouse in conjunction with that, uh, especially from a developer standpoint is construction costs, um, 
available labor for construction, materials, and lead time on materials and equipment is killer. Hmm. And so what we're seeing now is developers saying, hey, we're going to cut our pipeline of development activity relative to warehouse in half. And we're going to go from a, a $500 billion um, you know, development pipeline to 250 across the country. And it's, um, it's, it's almost a paradox because you've got all this incoming demand of manufacturers who will need warehouse. Um, but then you've also got all these challenges from labor, construction costs, material lead times that are working against building warehouse to facilitate that need. So I don't know where that lands, but it's, it's going to be an interesting, uh, you know, next two or three years uh, to see how that all shakes out. It's almost like that. Maybe some of the home builders. It may be very similar to to what's going on in like home construction, where a lot of the home builders are limiting construction because demand is falling. But there's uh, you know a lot of you know intricacies within each of those different segments. But it kind of sounds like both of them are trying to control their own supply and demand, or maybe ma- manufacture that supply and demand. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, th- I think where you're going to see a shift would potentially be, you know, taking abandoned properties. Um, so manufacturers could take abandoned facilities um, closer to the urban core and redeveloping those, um, taking old, you know, uh, functionally obsolete warehouses and raising the roof, literally raising the roof five mm-hmm. feet to make it more uh, marketable, to make it more functional. Um, and that, and in some cases, that's more cost effective than tearing down and rebuilding a, a space or going out and doing a build to suit. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Why only five feet? Why wouldn't they extend it? You know, maybe another, I don't know, 20 or 30 feet. Sorry, you broke up there for a second. Oh, I, I was asking why only uh, why only five feet? Why wouldn't they extend it maybe like 30 or 40 feet? Yeah, you know, I think we've reached a point where 40 feet is the maximum today. But, you know, I think five, six years ago, they said, well, we'll never go over. We'll never go over 32 feet. We'll never have a need for that. Um, But now you see cold storage facilities that have well over 40 feet. And it's completely automated. The robots know where to go. They go up the thing. They grab the frozen food or whatever it is, bring it back down, and send it on out. So it's it, yeah, it's 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 all demand driven. All hey, how can we remove the um, you know the labor element out of out of this as well? And it, it's funny. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but but the no, so in Arizona, uh, fifteen. 20 years ago, there was a you know a substantial amount of industrial product out there. It's a great centralized location to service California, which is typically more expensive, more regulated. So Phoenix, Arizona is perfect for facilitating stuff into California. And what's happened, the product out there has, it went from only 20% had maybe HVAC in the warehouses. And in some cases, they'd use something like a, a swamp cooler that was very mm-hmm. um, uh, an antique way of cooling off a warehouse. Um, now it's completely flipped, and now maybe 20% is left like that. And now you've got 80% of the industrial market 
properties in Arizona that are, uh, you know, heated and cooled. And it's not because of the products that they're storing. We know it's hot in, in Phoenix, Arizona. It's not because of the products. It's because of the labor. That's the only way they can get employees to come in and work in those buildings because they're oh, wow. not hot. And so we're also seeing a shift in how you cater to labor. And if you can spend an extra you know, $100,000 a year and increase your retention by 20%, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, that, that's actually interesting. I, I I wouldn't have even thought about it from that aspect, but it makes a ton of sense. Like, who it, you're obviously going to face some hiring challenges if you if your building is over a hundred degrees in the summertime. They, hardly anyone wants to work in those kind of conditions. And so, knowing you know, sort of the the customer expectations, the the demand levels of where they are right now and in the coming years. Where do, does Wagner p- place their bets? Where are they, you know, sort of sitting in, in the market and where are they placing their bets for in the future? So we're taking a targeted approach. Uh, we've identified, I'm just going to say 10 different markets across our portfolio where we want to double, triple, quadruple our footprint in those markets. And those are markets where we feel like we have a strong presence, I guess a strong market of manufacturing presence. Um, a, a decent labor market, um, and then uh, you know enough industrial product um, to give us the ability to have some level of flexibility in in our um, our real estate options. And with my background being you know in in real estate, I know that being able to pit landlords against each other is a big deal. And if you're in New Jersey or the Inland Empire, you don't have that option. There are no vacancies. You are at the mercy of the landlord. And there's a lot of good landlords out there, but they're, they're, you know, they're, they're taking what they can today because they might not get it tomorrow. Um, So it, 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 we're taking that targeted approach into these markets Um, from a labor standpoint, you know, we've had to shift the way that we appeal uh, to employees and, and, you know, and it's a balance because we're also trying to fulfill our contracts and complete our, our service level agreements. Um, and that's required us to go and hire temp services, uh, to, to hire enough employees. Uh, we've sped up the hiring process, um, by, you know, eliminating initial drug testing up front. Um, and, that's a whole thing in of itself, because if you take too long to hire the employee, there's enough demand for that employee out there that if you don't snatch them up that day, you might not get a response back from them at all. And so oh, wow. we've quantified recruiting, just recruiting one warehouse employee is a thousand dollars. Wow. So if we're constantly recruiting these these folks, it's it's uh, you know, it, it just eats us alive. Um, so we have to get better at not just recruiting, but retaining those employees. So measuring, uh, measures to bolster employee satisfaction and improve that retention is, you know, top of our list. Um, and then once we have an employee on, you know, a lot of it's about onboarding, uh, proper training and giving them a, a really good orientation to understand what their role is and how they contribute to the success of the company. Um, 30 years ago, you know, warehousemen were big, tough, burly men that, that moved big sacks of grain around and, you know, 
hammered uh, boxes together and 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 shipped it on, you know, threw it on a on a on a rail on a rail car, and that's that's what it was perceived to be 30 years ago. It's not like that anymore. You know, it's a very diverse community of people that like working in a warehouse, but they also want to have that direction. They want to have that work-life balance. Um, and they want to be recognized for the good things that they do. And I think too, that that's, that's sort of shining a light on, you know, just the warehouse workers themselves, the people that are responsible for, for helping you get those items, you know, within a couple days, you know, I, I think I heard, or I read that Amazon had a memo in the middle of like the, the COVID pandemic when e-commerce demand is just skyrocketing high, that they were legitimately worried that they were going to run out of workers that they could potentially, not the workers that they've hired or maybe already hired in the past, but they were legitimately worried that they were going to run out of folks that they could even recruit to come and work inside their warehouses because they have, you know, so many throughout, you know, the, the country. So how does, you know, how do you even think about compa- or competing with, you know, the likes of like an Amazon? I imagine if you treat your employees halfway decent, you're, you're probably half the way there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, statistics would show you that the e-commerce industry in general and, and, you know, Amazon covers a large portion of that industry that the it's a the e-commerce sector is a meat grinder when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, attrition and and employee turnover. It's just a constant. I mean, it's it's almost 50 percent. So you're constantly seeing new people coming in and out of your facility and it's incredibly difficult to manage successfully Hmm. because you're constantly having to retrain and you're having to change the roles to where they're more simplified, more of a push button. Hey, go pick this up, put it over there. Um, And that's where some like automation comes into play because if you can automate the, um, uh, the, the process itself to tell the employees where to go, it takes, part of the training out of it. So I think from an e-commerce standpoint, that's, there's more of a, uh, a demand for automation to make it easier hmm. to bring people in because there's so much turnover from our standpoint, you know, we look at automation and uh, uh, from more of a uh, setting up a roadmap of automation for our customers rather than trying to address labor issues. So mm-hmm. it's, it's more like, hey, we're, we're going to start out. We're not going to fully automate this facility today, but we're going to show you, here's your first step. Here's here's your long travels within the warehouse. Here's here's your repetitive moves um, that, that we think that we can automate to support and make it a better experience for employees so that they're able to be cross-trained across different roles. They're able to really understand how the warehouse works without making it too complicated. Do you wish there was a central place to pull in all of your social media posts, recruit employees, and give potential customers a glimpse into how you operate your business? Well, all of this should already be on your website, but too often we hand that responsibility of building our online home off to a cousin, a neighbor's kid down the street, or a stranger across the world. Digital Dispatch believes in building a better website at a fraction of the cost that those big-time marketing agencies would charge. 
Because we've spent years on those digital front lines, our experience team focuses on the modern web technologies to bring in all of the places you're already active online, show off those customer success stories, and measure the ROI of it all in one place. With managed website plans starting at $90 a month, head on over to digitaldispatch.io to see how we can build your digital ecosystem on a strong foundation. We've got explainer videos right on the website and the ability to book a demo immediately. Find it all over at digitaldispatch.io. Now, I, I know that, you know, for, for a lot of, of your customers, they're, they're more on the manufacturing side of things. So they're probably bigger items, you know, bulkier items, things like, or, or I guess more awkward, not awkwardly shaped, but you, you get what I'm saying. It's not a nice and neat little, you know, e-commerce boxes that's great for shipping. Um, so with that in mind, how are you or, or maybe not focusing on, you know, like the automation, robotics, things that are, you know, uh, very popular in sort of the e-commerce driven world, but is that really applicable to, you know, the, the manufacturing side of things? Yeah, I think it, it really boils down to what the, what the customer wants and, and really what they, what they need to be able to handle, um, <laughs> for their, for their volumes and demand. And so it, in some of the, in, in every market and in, in the top 50 in every market, there's labor challenges. And if, and it really boils down to it, labor costs. So, it, you know, a lot of three PLs estimated labor was going to escalate by maybe 5% year over year, hmm. five years ago, it's done more like eight to 10% a year. So you've had this increase in labor costs, and then you've had a decrease in automation at technology and some of the things that are coming across the table. So you've got these two lines that are going to converge. And the, the play to our customers is, hey, let's find where that line converges. Mm -hmm. Let's plan around that specifically. And then we'll, we'll be able to put a plan together so that we're mitigating how much you're paying with labor. But, you know, we're also not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're, we're, um, able to, rather than have this big dynamic roller coaster of costs, we've got an even keel of costs that still covers the customer's demand. Which is a smart play, in my opinion, because it's it's automation only makes sense where it makes sense. I think for for a lot of folks, it's it, they just want to add automation just for the sake of saying that they have automation, and then it's software or your processes and technology that is outdated within just a couple of years, and you just spend all that time and energy and money into you know investing in those platforms, and then they are out of date within just a couple of years, and so you kind of have to find that really sweet spot, like you said, of of marrying sort of the, the the worker relationship with all of these different technology trends that are that are coming into the space. And another one of the, the aspects that, that you guys tackle and I was reading is that you have a sort of a, a shared relationship between the tenants within the warehouse. Can you kind of speak to, you know, s some of the pros and cons of having a, a tenant relationship or maybe a, 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 I guess, a roommate situation with a lot of your your, your warehouse clients? Yeah, so um, we call it our, our flexible warehousing solutions or our multi-customer warehouses. Um, and we've developed a program that allows um, manufacturers, maybe on a, a smaller scale or a, a, still a dedicated opportunity, but they're basically sharing the space across a handful 
of shippers, manufacturers versus having one dedicated facility. Um, the benefit there is that you're able to take advantage of the shared space. Um, you're taking advantage of shared equipment and shared labor across the uh, across that building, across that operation. And so in most cases, there's some level of seasonality across those customers. And so what we're constantly trying to do is reduce that customer's occupancy cost by leveraging complementary customers that will come in and like, let's say uh, one customer has an initial bill that goes through June and then they start to deplete their inventory. Well, if we have another customer that has a bill that begins in June or July, then it's kind of a yin and yang thing where we're, we're able to keep concrete covered and we're able to keep them from paying too much for space. That makes a ton of sense because I think that another aspect to it, and, and I think that's you know, a, a good fit for especially a lot of your manufacturing, you know, clients is the aspect that you guys also build next to uh, you have a rail component that is a very strong selling point for a lot of your warehouse locations. Why is that for folks who may not be aware of the advantages of rail? So rail itself is, is um, uh, it, it's, you know, it's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, you can carry three to four truckloads of product in one in one uh, rail car. Um, efficiencies over an intermodal, you're avoiding dray, uh, drayage and box termination. Um, and, you know, it's more cost effective over longer distances. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if the volumes are there with manufacturers, um, you can save additional transportation. And, and the more volume you have, the more the railroad's going to work with you as well. Um, We've known railroads to come in and build a spur, knowing that they're going to get a lot more volume from from your your group specifically. Um, the challenge is that you you know because of the longer lead time on rail transportation, you know it requires more planning uh, to really realize those savings. So understanding when you need to receive the product and allowing enough time to kind of build that infrastructure into your plan mm-hmm. is uh, is a big deal. Yeah, I, I just actually had a conversation with with Martin Liu over at Comtrex, and he was talking about you know the the incoming benefits or sort of the future of rail being transloading, and how all of these different components can really help you save a ton of cash on your shipping, which you know shipping can be upwards of fifty percent of your overall you know budget for the company overall, and so if you could save just a a few percentage points on your shipping cost, you know, by shipping via rail, then that has a significant downstream effect as far as as your savings are concerned. And so when you, so say I, I'm a customer and I want to come and I want to do business with with Wagner and I want you guys to, to take over as far as, or maybe not even take over, maybe handle that aspect of, you know, the, the storage and the shipment of my goods, where does Wagner play a role? Are you just the, you know, the, I guess the, the real estate location, or are you providing all of those logistics management services, the, you know, coordinating transportation, coordinating the rail, what are you guys doing and what, what, what do your customers, you know, need the most help with? So we, I I guess the, the, the two main parts of our business would come from sourcing the warehouse uh, implementing the operation at the warehouse and distribution operation itself, and then also facilitating any transportation needs that would come off of our docks. Um, that's where we really provide a lot of value. Obviously, we have value-added services that would be comparable to any other 
uh, 3PL. Um, but I, I feel like we have a competitive advantage on, on the real estate side, uh, just knowing how those transactions play out, um, different contacts that we've made uh, throughout the country and, and by the means by which we, we go out and, and source uh, you know, new real estate opportunities. We, we kind of have a, a good rhythm down and a good way of you know, moving quickly to take down space. And a lot of our customers see a lot of value in that because they have to go through a lot of red tape. They have to go through legal. They have to go through all these different things, um, you know, if, especially if they're like a Fortune 500 company to, uh, to, to navigate and really negotiate a deal. And if you're taking that long, you put yourself in a position to be, um, you know, competing against other tenants uh, for space. And these days, it's it makes it really difficult to get a uh, below market or even, you know, um, uh, to try to avoid a horse race for a building. Um, if that's the case. Well, how how are the, I guess these customers avoiding that? You know, we, we kind of talked about sort of the the. I guess the the crunch as far as space availability, and it's probably only going to get worse from here on out. So, so how are you helping maybe your some of your clients tackle those who maybe be maybe are working in an industry that is experiencing an unreal amount of of demand, um, not only now but maybe in the future. Um, you know, it's it's uh, we've taken a look at customers' existing facilities and shown them. Uh, how to reduce, I guess, how to maximize the cube in their warehouse. Um, uh, for instance, we, we looked at a, uh, a facility with a customer and they had normal racking in, in place or in their plan. And we showed them that by instituting very narrow aisle racking with a certain level of automation, um, they'd be able to reduce their footprint in that space by 60%. Uh, so it's it's also getting creative with the existing existing space you have. And then, um, you know, uh, in some cases when we have to go and take down a facility, you might have to settle a little bit for a lesser, less than ideal type location or, you know, provide some upfit uh, in the space to, to make it work or make it be more functional. We've run across a few different um, locations where the dock doors are not an ideal size. So we had to figure out what that was going to cost to upfit the dock doors. And in some cases it's not cheap. Hmm. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I could imagine that, that, you know, those unforeseen circumstances, those unforeseen costs are probably, you know, e- existing with any new building maybe that you in, invest in, in the future. So for folks who, who may want to continue following the journey, as far as like, you know, warehousing and storage capacity are, are concerned, you know, what does, I guess, maybe the five ne- next five years look like, or is it impossible to even sort of gauge that out right now? You know, I, it is tough. I, I think it's tough to look further out than like 18 months. Um, five years. I don't know where we'll be in five years. <laughs> right. I, um, but, you know, uh, what, what was I? So I guess sticking on the rail, because I'm all about rail right now. We're all always trying to find direct rail surf space. And as far as real estate challenges for the next five years, there's going to be there's already virtually zero percent vacancy for wow. real estate space, and if it comes on the market, it's off the market within a, a few days. In some cases, we were just competing for a space um, here in Kansas City, and um, we had to step away because the the group wanted they offered a ten year deal just just because it had rail coming to it. 
Wow. Um, so it's, and it, that's a paradox too, because you have rail serve space, direct rail serve warehouse buildings, but from a landlord standpoint, there's no additional value that comes from having rail coming to the building. Appraisers will not grant an additional credit or value to the building because of huh. rail service. And so it, it's crazy to me. Um, but when you have such a niche use of that building with rail coming in, they, they can't justify adding value to it. Now, if you're asking me for a prediction, I think over the next five years, you're going to see that change and you're going to see intermodal facilities uh, begin to overflow and you're going to see companies pay a major premium, more so than they are today, for rail served, direct rail serve space. Because it almost sounds like you're, you're allowing yourself to have uh, guaranteed capacity or at least guaranteed movement of your goods or the flexibility, at least. Yeah. That's, that's a little shocking that, you know, the appraiser wouldn't add any value to that. It speaks to maybe a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the value of, of something like that, of what it would provide to a building into an area. Yeah. So for yeah, folks. I, who, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I would I would go and lobby for it. But it, it, if if they did add value to the property, it would only it would not serve my interests. So. <laughs> right. It would only complicate maybe things for you. So, so well, actually, how do you guys find out ab ab about if a building becomes available and if it do you just have to go by and look or look them up on Google Maps or or how do you how do you do that part of the research process in order to make that um, investment? We have we have really uh, we have a really strong uh, real estate partner. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I was real estate's kind of the wild, wild west still. It's like the last remaining frontier of information protection. So, mm -hmm. so it's, it all deals are done on information that's, that's available. Um, and you, you, by knowing more than the other, than the landlord or knowing more than the tenant, you can put yourself in a, a, a much better position to win. Mm -hmm. Um, and capitalize on that knowledge. So it's it's always been that way, but the because of death of distance, because of you know digital information access, um, and really better information, it's taken the the value of just that one broker knowing what's going on in that market, and so they've had to they've had to step it up and provide better reporting on. Uh, you know, site selection information like what what your state and local taxes tax incentives would be, um, what the labor markets in that area look like, where you know the um, uh, 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 where the new buildings are going to come out of the ground, what kind of relationships they have that might give us a first position in no, in negotiations. Um, so it's. It's ever evolving, but it's it's uh, it's not just hey, I know a guy who has a building that I can lease to you. It's it's gotten more complicated than that. It almost sounds like you have to hire like private investigators in order to to find out, you know, the the, the scoop on each of these projects. That's not far off. <laughs> All right, Joe. Uh, where where um, 
I guess, you know, for, for folks or customers who may be looking for, you know, storage solutions right now or in the near future and, and want to get in touch with, with Wagner and find out everything that you guys got going on, where can folks, you know, follow more of your work and, and, and maybe, you know, uh, check out your site and, and, you know, get access to some of that available space? Yeah, you can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us on our web, website, wagnerlogistics.com. Um, find me on LinkedIn. You can, uh, yeah, we're, we're out there on the socials and uh, we're, we're moving and shaking. So always, always looking to, to have good conversations and help people um, with their warehousing. Awesome. Well, I think this was a really great conversation to have, especially around the, the, the wild, wild west aspect of, of buying up locations in order to ensure that you at least have some kind of storage capabilities. So appreciate your time, Joe, and uh, love to have you back on the show in the future. Hopefully um, the, the, the market is in you know a little bit less of a challenging situation than what you know we all kind of find ourselves in. But then that's that's logistics. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me out. And I, I look forward to revisiting this conversation and me apologizing for how wrong I am. In, in <laughs> I know in the, the five years, I'm going to set a date and we're going to say, <laughs> hey, all of these predictions were wrong and these were right. And this is what we're going to bet on in the future. That's right. <laughs> all right. Perfect. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everything is Logistics, a podcast for the thinkers in freight, telling the stories behind how your favorite stuff and people get from point A to B. If you liked this episode, do me a favor and sign up for our newsletter. I know what you're probably thinking, oh God, another newsletter. But it's the easiest way to stay updated when new episodes are released, plus we drop a lot of gems in that email to help the one-person marketing team and folks like yourself who are probably wearing a lot of hats at work in order to help you navigate this digital world a little bit easier. You can find that email sign-up link along with our socials and past episodes over at everythingislogistics.com. And until next time, I'm Blythe and go Jags! Go Jags!